Okay, so we have some incredible, incredible Torahs here on the depth and profound nature of the mitzvah mezuzah. And what we're going to do today is we're going to delve into the machshava, the deep inner philosophy behind the essence of the mitzvah mezuzah. But we're also going to delve into the halacha and some of the deeper ian sugyas of mezuzah. Because I want to cover a lot in this year, we're not going to be able to delve that much into really the full depth of the ian sugyas. Um, but there will hopefully be a lot more to discuss in the future. But I want to lay down some of the fundamental seeds, some of the fundamental questions, and some of the ideas that we really can utilize to delve deeper into this profound mitzvah. Because whenever we talk about a sugya or a mitzvah, you start out with the fundamental questions, which is, what is this? What is a mezuzah? What's the purpose of a mezuzah? So you have a mezuzah, and you place it on the doorway, right? The doorpost. Why are we placing it there? Why are we placing on doorpost? Um, why are we placing a certain place in the doorpost? And why is it tilted? Right? You have a mezuzah, and you open it up, and it has... It's a very interesting parashias, mostly related to the Shema. And you ask yourself, what is this mitzvah? What's the purpose of the mitzvah? Why are we doing it? How are we doing it? What, you know, we, we walk past the mitzvah every single day. Some people kiss it, some people don't kiss it. Some people see it, some people don't see it. It's one of those things where when it's part of your everyday life and you're not aware of the inner essence of what it is, it just becomes another thing that you're oblivious of because your mind can only take in that much data, that much information. And if you don't have a specific meaning and significance that you associate with certain things in your day, then it just gets filtered out and you don't pay attention to it. So I want to delve deep into the nature of the mitzvah of mezuzah, but I also want to analyze some of the fundamental halacha questions. So when we talk about the halacha mezuzah, some of the basic questions are what size room requires a mezuzah? Does every room require a mezuzah? And if not, what is the parameter? What is the fundamental baseline for when a room requires a mezuzah? And what about apartment buildings? Like, do you have to own the building? Um, what, uh, you know, for example, you can think of it like this. Does the doorway require a door? Um, or does it, even if there's no door, what about an archway? Meaning, does every doorway require a mezuzah? Or only if there's a door do you have to have a mezuzah? Meaning a door that opens and closes? Or let's say you have an archway without a door, just like a, a, an opening. Does that count? Do you have to have put a mezuzah on that? And how high up should you place the mezuzah? Let's say you have a really, really tall door, which is like 100 feet tall. Is it a certain ratio, like, you know, a certain amount, you know, a certain, it, is it based on human height? So it's always going to be a certain basic height, or is it based on the actual height of the archway or of the doorway? Um, what type of rooms require a mezuzah? Uh, is it only a room in your house? What about a storage room? Uh, what if no one lives there? For example, let's say it's a store or even a shul or a school. You see mezuzahs on a lot of these places. Do you, do you require a mezuzah? And let's say um, it does require a mezuzah. Is it the type of requirement that requires a bracha when you put up the mezuzah or not? These are fundamental questions. Uh, it's it's also, what's the nature of the chiv of putting mezuzah up? If you don't own the property, let's say you're renting, does that create a chiv? Um, these are definitely important things to think about. What if you move if you move and you're now going to go into a new home, do you take the mezuzahs from your home or do you leave them there? 
What if you, let's say a guy is going to be moving in, a non-Jewish person is going to be moving into the house. Do you have to leave them as those? Are you allowed to take them? Do you have to take them? These are all important questions. And when it comes to halacha, when it comes to analyzing halachic sugis, you want to, number one, root them you know, in the actual sugis and discussions in the Gemaras. And when you want to learn these sugis in depth, you want to spend you know, many, many, many hours uh, analyzing the makars, analyzing the sources, learning them in depth, and having you know, a set limit, a set time to really focus on contemplating and analyzing and building the structure of the sugya, of the topic. But the goal of this year is the following. Number one, I want to delve into some of the more conceptual frameworks, conceptual ideas, fundamental ideas regarding mezuzah. And I want to introduce certain concepts and ideas that permeate all of the both practical and conceptual discussions of mezuzah. And through those principles and ideas of what mezuzah represents, you'll have the tools with which to apply them when learning you know, the Gemara-ian, learning Gemara-ian, learning the sugyas with the actual Makoros, or delving into just the halachic shitas within the achronim, within the postkim, because tools, ideas, principles, concepts, that is, it gives you openings, gives you gateways, it gives you, uh, you know, the ability to approach and understand how to deepen your analysis of these topics. So we're not going to be able to delve into all of the Makoros, all of the sources inside. I'm going to go through some of the more important halachic discussions afterwards when it comes to a lot of these questions. But I want to now take a little bit of a shift and frame our halachic discussion with a pretty lengthy discussion of some of the essential core concepts when it comes to mezuzah. And to do this as... (laughs) As we must always do, we need to ask important questions. Because what questions do is they open you up. That's why when it comes to the Seder night, it's a a time of questions. Why are we asking so many questions on Seder night? Because what a question does is it creates a gap, it creates an opening, it shows that there is a lack of understanding, and creates a curiosity and desire to understand, to fill that gap. And very often the question is much more important than the answer because it creates a learning process which never ends. And the goal of a question is not to answer the question, but to truly live within the question and to have the answer become part of the process but not conclude the process. But in order to frame and understand deep concepts, the questions actually are almost like stepping stones which guide you towards deeper understanding because the question actually itself is a learning process because it shows you, oh, wait a second, that's really interesting. I never thought about that. And you start actually gaining knowledge and insight from the questions themselves. So in addition to the basic halachic questions, which are always essential and always fundamental, let's take a step deeper and try to deepen our understanding of what mezuzah really is. And, and I want to start with a very interesting sugya. Sugya is actually comes up in the Gemara in, in Shabbos, Davchav, Bezam, and Aleph. And the sugya is dealing with a very interesting parallel between the menorah and the mezuzah. And it says that the menorah should go on the left of the doorway and the mezuzah should go on the right. And in the, the Gemara, there's actually initially a machlokas about which should go on the right, which should go on the left, but it's resolved, and the menorah is supposed to go on the left, the mezuzah is supposed to go on the right. And the question is why, you know, it's one of those things where we used to place 
and the menorah opposite the mezuzah in the doorway because we used to have our menorahs in the doorway so why what's the what's the theme of this parallel why why should one go on the left one go on the right why don't they both go on the right and what's the theme of menorah what's the theme of mezuzah meaning why does the gemara seem to think it's really important that they both be in the doorway paralleling each other one on the right one on the left and also what is the what is the essence of mezuzah because it seems to be that mezuzah is very related to the oneness of hashem Right, the Pesukim in the mezuzah relate to Shema, relate to Yichud Hashem. But whenever we talk about the mezuzah, the theme of oneness, the theme of, of Shema, of Yichud Hashem, should be expressed in the details of mezuzah. So how is that expressed? I Meaning, how do we see the theme of oneness expressed in mezuzah, especially because it seems to be the exact opposite? Because we are putting the mezuzah up on a slanted, crooked angle, and you think, well, what, where in halacha, where in in the the essential theme of being part of Kleisrael, do you find the idea of crookedness? If anything, it should be the opposite. Kleisrael is yashar, yashar kale, that's Yisrael. Right? So the mezuzah should be straight. Why are we putting it up in a crooked way? So let's begin by introducing some of the essential principles and themes of mezuzah. And the best place to start is with the Rambam. The Rambam frames the essence of mezuzah, the, the fundamental nature of mezuzah, as something that brings an awareness of the oneness of Hashem. Right? The Rambam formulates it that when you enter a room, when you enter a new rishus, it should awaken you to the awareness of the oneness of Hashem. And his lashon is absolutely penetrating. The lashon that he uses is actually parallel to the lashon he uses by the shofar, right? When, if you recall, the way the Rambam uses the, the mitzvah of the shofar in terms of his lashon is he says that the shofar wakes you up from your stupor, from your sleep, and wakes you up to you know, the true nature of who you are, what you're supposed to be doing. And that's the essence of El, is a wake-up call to really get you back into a state of true to alignment with your higher self, your higher values, Avodos Hashem, and that's the idea of teshuva. It's returning to what? To your true self. And we talked about this many times, as Gemara Nida Daflamanamabez, of getting back to your fidel self when you learn Kala Torah Kula, in terms of actualizing your true potential. And as the Ramchal, many Balimach Shabbat talk about, our whole life journey is a journey of teshuva, of returning to our true selves. But the Rambam uses a very similar lush when it comes to mezuzah. <laughs> and at first glance, you kind of raise your eyebrows and you say, the mezuzah is a wake-up call? The mezuzah is supposed to wake me up? To... It's like, really? What about the mezuzah wakes you up? But the chauffeur is literally like a, 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 a deafening blow. It's like, a, a, it's literally a wake-up call. It's it's almost like a trumpet, you know. You hear it and you're like, "Whoa, what's going on? Something's going on." There's a a physical wake up call and that initiates a spiritual wake up call. But the mezuzah is very strange because how is that a wake up call? There's nothing. There's nothing that's literally waking you up when it comes to the mezuzah. So how are we supposed to understand that? And another interesting aspect of the mezuzah is not only the fact that it's parallel to the shofar where it's waking you up but it's it's the underlying nature of what the mezuzah represents so let's try to understand what this wake-up call is because the wake-up call is definitely much more conceptual than literal 
and something is happening. The mezuzah represents something that is happening. In order to understand that, we need to understand where we are placing the mezuzah. The, the emphasis, especially in the way the, the Rishonim talk about the mezuzah, the emphasis of a mezuzah is the transition from Rishus HaRabim to Rishus HaYachid. It's transitioning from one state of reality to another. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? So let's try to understand this. Let's try to understand this on multiple levels. On the most basic level, a Rishus HaYachid is a private establishment, and Rishus HaRabim is a public establishment. So this is important for Hilchah Shabbos, it's important for Kinyanim, it's important for many things, it's important for, for many aspects of, of transitional reality, of, of ownership, of, of conceptual categories, but there's something much more fundamental. Rishus HaRabim is a public place. There's something transformative that happens when you transition from a public reality to a private reality. And this is much more than just practical, this is existential. You see, in a public forum, when you're with other people, there's a shallowness to your level of dust, your level of awareness, of true self-awareness. You can only be so much who you are when you're with other people. But it's when you enter into a private rishus, a rishus hayachid, that things transition. And there are multiple levels. Number one is that you are different amongst different people. You're different when you're with your Rebbe than with your friends. You're different with your friends than you are with your family, with your parents. And maybe you're different with your siblings than with your parents. Maybe you're different with your spouse than with you know, your friends. Maybe you're different with your kids than with your spouse. The point is that you are different amongst different scenarios, different situations. Rishus Hayachid enters you into a private reality, and you are different in private than when you are in public. But more fundamentally, you're different amongst others than you are by yourself. And this is the deep yesod of the Rambam, that the Kesar Torah, that the crown of Torah is developed, built, and earned with the Torah that you learn at night. Why? Because there's different categories of Torah. There's a Torah you learn in Seder. You learn with the Chavrusa. The Torah that you learn uh, you know, in a shir. You listen to a rabbi in, in a more public arena. But then there's the Torah of Kesar Torah, which is becoming Torah, which is transformational Torah, which is where you build your, your das, your inner perspective, your inner reality, your inner consciousness, your inner awareness, your true value system, your true categorical system of Torah, how you actually integrate Torah into how you see the world, and that's done in private. That's done in contemplation. That's done... Um, that's done at night when you're by yourself. It's a Torah you learn by yourself. And it's a Torah that's contemplative, that is transformational in the sense of you're dealing with Ikarim and concepts that literally baffle you and bend your mind and you have to contemplate and think about it and write it down and rewrite it down. And it's an endless process of self-awareness and, and true internal contemplation. The mezuzah is the transition from that public arena of life to the private arena of life. 
It's a transition from the world outside to the world inside, to your outer world and your inner world, as Rav Dessler would talk about. And what that really means is also a transition on a more fundamental level in another sense, which is the transition from two-ness to oneness. Because Akash Baruch Hu created a world of two-ness, as the Maharal talks about all the time, that Akash Baruch Hu created the world with a base. Why? Because Anochi Hashem Elokecha, when Akash Baruch Hu reveals himself by Ma'an Torah, that starts with an Aleph, the letter of oneness. But when he created the physical world, that starts with a base, Bereshus, because the physical world of creation is an expression of oneness and two-ness. We live in a world of two-ness. So you see things. There's one thing over there, another thing over there. You see different conflicting ideas, different conflicting values, different conflicting approaches. You see see lots of expansive expressions of things in a multitudinous way where, I don't even know if that's a word, but it sounded like a word, you know, multitude, multitudinous. But the point is that there's an expression of absolute oneness where there's no differentiation, there's no multiplicity, there's no distinction, there's no conflict, there's no um, point as in there's no different points where you can point to that and then point to that. There, there's no thingness. That's also the, the, the deeper idea of, of, of ayin, is not nothing but no thing. It's beyond thing. Yishmi ayin is something from that which, which is beyond thingness. It's the creation of physical reality from the infinite, from the spiritual, from the ethereal. And the point is that the world we live in is a world of tunas. But at the root of tunis is oneness, which means that Kaj Baruch Hu, as the Nef Shechem talks about, Kaj Baruch Hu is constantly creating a world of tunis from the world of oneness, which means that multiplicity always stems from a common underlying fundamental root. And that's why the Ramchal always talks about pursuing klal and pursuing underlying concepts because all multiplicity, all distinction, all differentiation, all machlokas, all argumentation, all stems from a common underlying shared unity and root, which is also the underlying concept of because multiplicity and multiple perspectives, multiple truths, all stem out of an underlying oneness. So from the perspective of oneness, everything is the same. From the perspective of twoness, everything is different. And living in this world is complicated because if you want to live in a world of oneness, you can't live in this world. If you want to live in a world of twoness, where's the oneness? Where's the underlying unity, connection, and integration, synthesis, and synergizing of multiple perspectives? And therefore, life becomes a balancing of oneness and twoness, where on the one hand, you have oneness, where everything is everything, everything's within everything, everything's connected to everything, there's no differentiation, there's no multiplicity, there's no thing this, there's no physicality, everything is pure and spiritual, integrated and synthesized, and it's it's true MS, it's true oneness, and yet there's the perspective of Tunis, where it's just not the way that we, we don't experience a world of oneness, really, we experience a world of Tunis, where there are differences. Right, you know, you're over there, I'm over here. We're not one, right? Even in marriage, like you're never actually one. You're still two people, right? And you can talk about this romantic, beautiful oneness, but where is it? Like everything's still two, and 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 of course, Hakadosh Baruch Hu's one. But how can you have a physical world of twoness? And you just like you, you grapple with the complexity of dealing with multiplicity. So what's the solution? The solution is understanding the principle of hierarchy where on the one hand, everything is everything, 
Everything's within everything. Everything is one. Everything is interconnected. There's no differentiation. Everything is everything. Everything. Is, and, and for some of you, this might not be making any sense. You might be saying, like, I don't know what you're talking about. Of course, it's not like that. But at root, at spiritual root, everything is everything. Everything is interconnected. But there are also differences. And as opposed to saying that at root, everything is one, but in expression, everything is two, you start building a harmony. You start building a synthesis between those two principles. And the way you do that is through this concept of hierarchy. Because when you say everything is one, everything's interconnected, but there are also differences, it allows for categories. And then you start to build a hierarchy of categories. And you start to build a hierarchy of principles. And there are principles within principles. And the Moshe I like to give is kind of like a tree, where you have underlying principles, which you, call, you, should, you can kind of refer to as the trunk, and that expresses into you know, expressed principles and ideas, which are the big branches. Those express into other expressions, which are smaller branches. And those express into smaller things, which eventually express into leaves. And you can refer to leaves as a specific mitzvah, so you can refer to leaves a specific pratim, a specific details, but as the Ramchal always explains, you want to pursue klalim because within klalim are infinite pratim, and you start to realize that everything's interconnected. Everything is 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 synthesized and balanced within everything else, which is the true concept of Teferis and MS. And yet, even though everything's interconnected, there is differentiation. There is particularity. There is two-ness. And it's not two-ness versus oneness, but it's oneness within the two-ness and two-ness within the oneness. And when you live in a, a, a world with that mindset, life becomes balancing oneness and two-ness. And the mezuzah represents a transition from Rishush HaRabim, which is a world of Tunis, a world of, of multiplicity, where there's just so much into an integrated core, integrated root of Rishush HaYachid, which is a place of truly building oneness and harmony, truly synthesizing and integrating all those pieces, both outside of you conceptually and inside of you in your internal world, integrating it into a oneness. And it's a transition from the outside world into this potent, private, internal Kodesh HaKadoshim, so to speak, this internal reality. And even within your home, every single room equals a transition, right? Because you're going from one place to another, right? Yes, it's one home. Everything's connected. You're, 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 you're not denying the oneness of your home, but there's still particular, there still are different makomos, there are different places within your home, and every transition enters you into a new reality. So even though you're going from one place in your home to a different room in your, in your home, you still are going through a transition, and that transition enters you into a new reality, and that's what the mezuzah is. It's a reminder of the oneness at root, the oneness of Hashem, the Yichud Hashem, the Yichud of all of reality, and that even though you're going from one reality to another, and it seems that you're living in the world of Tunis, you're always tracing that back to a reality of oneness. And that gets at one of the most interesting details of the mezuzah, which is that we seem to, <laughs> we seem to put it up in, in a crooked angle. Right? It's why are we putting the mezuzah up in a crooked way? It's, it's so strange. But this teaches an absolutely incredible idea. That the straight path is actually relative. Now what does this mean? The Bala Machshava talk about straightening the bent path. 
and they they use the following analogy that the physical world used to be like a straight path right you walk down a straight path you look back everything's great but after adam harishan sins the world bent now what does that mean when you're walking down a straight path you look back you see exactly where you came from but when the path bends you look back you can no longer see where you came from you have to use intellect you have to use memory you have to figure out how to trace yourself back to where you came from before adam harishan said the world was luminescent meaning what meaning that you can easily um physically experientially and intellectually trace yourself back to hashem hashem was clearly present and he was manifest within everything. The whole physical world lit up. Uh, the way that the Gemara talks about the Midrash and bring this out is that uh, Adam had ore, right? He was he wore Kutnas ore. So his skin was made of light. So when you look at a light bulb, you see light. If you look very closely, you see the actual bulb. When you look at a human being, you just see flesh, right? But no, when you looked at Adam Harishan, you didn't see flesh. You saw his self, his internal world, his goof, his physical vessel was illuminescent. It was transparent. And our physical vessels are no longer transparent. They are quite opaque. And you can only now get access to that which is inside through external expression. So when you share your thoughts with someone, when you speak, when you share your facial expressions, your body language, they can see what's inside of you. But only by seeing past the surface, right? You know when you can't see someone's thoughts, you can't see what's going on inside them, you can't see their selves, their neshama, their self, their soul, their internal world. So when Adam Harishan sinned, the whole world became opaque and no longer easily revealed the, the actual ichor, the actual root. And that's the idea of a bent path, where the you can no longer easily see where you came from. You have to trace yourself back. You have to straighten the bent path. It used to be a straight path, and now it's a bent path. And this idea connects to so many other topics. I have talked about this and many of other many of the other shirim we've given, and you know, spell this out quite profoundly in some of the chapters in the sefer that just came out, uh, the junior to ultimate self. But the most important point when it comes to mezuzah is that we're looking at a bent mezuzah but maybe we're not maybe we are the ones who are bent which means what that maybe straightening the bent path is not straightening the bent path but straightening ourselves it's transforming our perception where we're not transforming the world we're transforming our perception of the world and maybe it's that not that the mezuzah is crooked, but the mezuzah appears crooked because we're not looking at it right, because maybe we're crooked. And we need to realign our perception in line with the truth instead of trying to align the truth with our perspective, meaning we're not supposed to take the straight path and shape it to our crooked perception, but we have to re reconfigure our inner paradigms as in a lot of people they want to fit the truth into their worldview to make them comfortable because they want to live the truth but they also want to live the way they're living so they kind of confine the truth into their current worldview but what you're doing when you do this you're actually destroying the truth you're corrupting it you are um it's like trying to fit infinity into a small cup you're just destroying infinity as opposed to expanding the cup to you know, embrace infinity. So the goal is to fit ourselves and our inner world into the truth and not fit the truth into ourselves. And that's the essence of mezuzah, is that every time you transition and you're 
you're going through a transition from one room to another, from one rishos to another, and you're living in a world of tunis, you're always reminding yourself to straighten that bent path, to to build an internal sense of oneness and harmony and a deeper worldview, a deeper a deeper perception. And it's a training, and that's the wake-up call of the Rambam. It's an internal explosion where when you're awake, when you're spiritually, existentially, and intellectually awake, then there is always this, this vigor, this excitement, this passion, this explosion of, wow, when the ideas of Torah are impacting you. When you see it, mezuzah, there should be that impact, that reaction, that, that chemical reaction of mezuzah meets you and you meet the mezuzah and just wow it's like a shofar blowing inside of you you just you get awoken to the true nature of what this world truly is and that's the difference by the way between mezuzah and menorah and this is very powerful just we have to preface this with some very important principles so we've talked about this many times it's the the concept of chesed and interferes three fundamental ideas that are basically the core ideas of all all deeper jewish thought and the maharal uses this framework to to basically open up endless categories and concepts within torah and the principles basically chesed interferes are these three stages in every process so chesed represents the initial stage which is you know literally translated as kindness but it really reflects the concept of expansion outflow the infinite the spiritual it's just when you are, do an act of kindness to someone you are expressing something outside of yourself it's this concept of you know created the word because the act of expansion is the concept of chesed and din or gvura is the concept of limitation of setting boundaries and borders it's the concept of the finite it's the physical, it's the limited, that the, it's the concept of judgment. What's judgment? It's that this is exactly what it is. I've given it confined boundaries and I've limited it to what it is. So the mashal that the Jewish horses give is, Ches is the right hand, which is the loving hand of expansion, and Din, or Gvur, is the left hand of restriction. And that's why the, the Gemara says that by parenting, you have to know how to balance the right hand and the left hand, where the right hand is the Iker, but the left hand also is fundamental. And another way of framing Chesed versus Din is that Chesed is potential, where the, the outflow, the spiritual, is, is, has infinite potential, but it's just potential. And din or gvur limitation is is what enables you to actualize that potential because you can do anything in any given moment, but you can only do something. So chesed is the fact that you can do anything is potential, and din is limiting the infinite potential for something actual and actually getting something done, actually doing something. So the the way that my Ralph frames it is that these are the stages of the process, where the last stage is what's called uh, tiferes or orachanin where the first stage is always this outflow, infinite potential. The second stage is trying to actualize that infinite outflow into something real. It's giving it limitations and boundaries, giving it exactitude. That's the concept of mida k'negan mida, is measure for measure. It's getting exactly what you give, meaning whatever, it's, think of it like this. When you, when you hear something in your mind, it's like a seed that's planted. And whatever you feed your mind, you get. Because just like a seed always expresses into what it is, an orange seed becomes an orange tree. Whatever you plant into your mind, whatever you plant into the world, whatever you do, everything is midik negan where it becomes whatever it is that 
it became. As in, whenever you limit the infinite potential of something actual, that's what it is. So when you do something, the concept of onesh, the concept of getting punished, is really just a consequence. Where it's me to connect the meaning, you get exactly what you did. And it's the, the, the exact concept of onesh for the negative is char for the positive. You get exactly what you are. You get exactly what you did. And you want to make sure that the din doesn't squash or squander the potential, right? Because when you limit potential, you want to do it in a way that you're maximizing the potential, but you're still getting something done. Because if you say, oh, I want to maximize the potential as much as possible, you're not going to get anything done. Because you're going to say, oh, why should I do this? I could do this. Why should I? Why? And maybe I won't do this because I'll do that. And then you end up with all these theories of what you could, should, and will do, but you don't end up actually doing something. So the, the, the special power no pun intended, because Guru does mean power. But the special power of Guru is that it makes potential real, but you want to make sure that you are maximizing your potential while not saying that because I want to maximize my potential, that's the, the problem of perfectionism, is a lot of people, they don't actually do anything because they're so obsessed with what they could do and should do, what, what they will do, that they don't actually end up doing anything. And that's what Teferis is. Teferis is the perfect balance of making sure it's not too much and not too little, that you do everything in the way that you maximize the potential, you do it in the best way possible. You know, when it comes to rain, if you have too much rain, it's a mob, you have not enough rain, it's a, you have a famine, or it's a desert. Parenting, you give too much to your kids, you spoil them, you you basically, you know, say, oh, I'm not going to give too much, I'm not going to spoil them, but then you end up, you know, really harming your children if you don't give them enough. So you want that perfect balance when it comes to teaching. The Gemara Sachem Daf Kofiud Beis, I mean, Aleph, says that more than the calf wants to drink, the cow wants to nurse, right? You give a child too much, whether it's quantity or quality, uh, in, in terms of content, you give them too much, you're going to overwhelm them, you don't give them enough and you're holding them back from actualizing their potential. So the idea is always finding that balance. And one of the most important principles to realize is that din, limitation and restriction, is actually chesed. Because when din is done right, it enables the chesed. Because without din, chesed is too much and it's just potential. And with din, if you have too much din, it's too limiting. But the right din, which is what Teferi says, the right amount of din, that creates the right balance. And that's the idea when it comes to so many sugyas, especially the, the sugya, you have a lot of sugyas in Shas of Iker and Tafel. So giving is always the Iker, Chasid is the Iker, but the Tafel enables the Iker to survive. So there's so many sugyas in Shas where when you have a Tafel that enables the Iker, it becomes part of the Iker. Why? Because the limitation or the enabling is what allows the Iker to become real. And I was, uh, Maral talks about how this is the ideal relationship between Yaakov and Esav, and Esav didn't realize this. Esav, you know, Esav wanted to be the Iker, but because he, he didn't realize the Tafel was also part of the Iker, so he rejected his role. Um, and Chesed is not definitively good either. Chesed could be misused. We talked about how Chesed, uh, the, the Torah talks about how Chesed can be used in the wrong way. The lush in the Torah uses for a form of Arias is Chesed. Why? Because chesed is just expansion, outwards giving. But when you don't have any checks and balances, you don't have any restrictions, chesed becomes an actual corruption of what chesed should be, which is proper giving, and it can be used in the wrong way, given in the wrong way, and then it can actually end up with a lot of problems. So the ideal in life is always building teferis, building harmony, building balance, also known as rachamim, which, by the way, has the same shorish as rechem, a womb, because that was where you create a balance between male and female, between a husband and wife, where you create that child. 
and it's also um, a lot of a lot of deep ideas there. We don't have to we don't have time to delve so much into it, but I'll just very briefly share the the concept of of rachamim of tiferes of true harmony, true ms, is related to a couple of very important concepts. So one is pe'er. Pe'er is the same root of tiferes. It means beauty. Because beauty is the harmony, balance, and oneness of many different components and parts. If you look at a sunset, you don't say it's a beautiful sunset because it's the sun or because of you know the ocean or the sand. It's the, the integration and the harmony of so many different pieces coming together in a way where the sum transcends um, the sum of its parts, where you get something even more. That's why beauty, you don't say like the color blue is beautiful or the color green is beautiful. You say that's a beautiful painting, a picture, a beautiful sculpture because it's all these different textures and colors and, and things coming together in a beautiful way. And that's why Rofe, same shurish as the Ferris as well, and shares the same shurish as Pair, Rofe, a doctor, creates harmony within the body, homeostasis. And MS, people think that MS, Teferis is MS, right? That's that's Rachamim Teferis. What's what's MS? MS isn't a statement. The truth is the, taking and, and synthesizing, integrating all the pieces together. And it's like if someone said, goes over to his dad and says, this guy kicked me. And then he says, dad goes over to him and says, why did he kick my son? He says, oh, because he punched me in the face. He goes back to his son and says, you didn't tell me you punched him in the face. Why did you punch him in the face? That's because he pushed me down the stairs. So why did you push him down the stairs? That's because he called my name. So all of a sudden, you start to realize the story is a lot more complicated. So who's telling the truth? No, they're both telling the truth. They're just telling parts of the truth. But the whole truth is putting all the pieces together. That's when you learn to sugya be'in and shas. You don't say that this perspective is right, that perspective is right. You look to put all the different approaches together to understand the truth within each approach, to understand the spectrum. And that's also the concept of shalom. Right? Shalom might be translated as a lack of conflict where you don't fight, but the deeper idea of shalom is when you take conflicting ideas that seem to exist in contradiction to each other and you show how they can now exist within harmony. That's why shalem means completion. Because what's completion? When you create a, a true oneness of multiplicity, true oneness of different parts. That's why shalom got, uh, sorry, Pinchas got the bircha shalom. He got the, the brach of shalom after he killed Cosby and Zimri. It's an act of violence. Why did he get a brach of shalom? Because, number one, he needed a brach of shalom. He was about to become a Kohen. And as David HaMelech was, a, even though he was a big tzaddik, he was a soldier, and he couldn't build the base of Mikdash because, you know, your, your physical actions have an impact. You become what you do. So Pinchas needed that brach of shalom in order to become a Kohen and serve in the and do the avod in the Mishkan. But more importantly, he also created harmony amongst Kala Yisrael. There was chaos. There was a magefa, And he created harmony. Wait a second. He, he killed two people. How would he create harmony? No, because it seems that he did a violent act, but that violent act was able to bring Kala Yisrael together, get them out of their their mindless chaotic stupor of of the of the, the the you know the avirs they were in the midst of doing whether it was of Odazara or or you know Znus and all the different things that were happening there. But Pinchas created harmony, even though it was a violent act, Shalom is much more than no conflict. It's creating harmony, which is also the concept of marriage, of two people coming together into oneness. And the most difficult principle when it comes to creating oneness is knowing the balance knowing how to create balance. And it's, you know, the world we live in, it's difficult to live a life of balance, of true integration, true synthesis, true oneness. But when you learn how to do it, 
it's it's a very different way of life because a lot of people they live within choosing sides choosing sides in an argument choosing perspectives choosing and then once they choose a side the other side's automatically wrong because if they're not wrong then what does that say about you of course they have to be wrong because how are you going to be right unless they're wrong but when you stop choosing a specific side or at least stop thinking that by choosing a side i'm saying the other side's wrong you can live what with appreciating other perspectives understanding other sides other points of view and you don't live in such a simplified world where it's either a or b um and i'm choosing a or b it's it's more than a or b it's more than a and b it's it's understanding the spectrum of perspectives understanding the truth within every perspective and really deepening your own paradigms and perspectives so that you can live a life of higher truth and now we move on to applying this to the the sugya of the menorah and the mezuzah so the principles of chesed din and deferis beautiful principles the underlying principles and mitos of life uh, you can spend forever just learning through all the applications and depth of these three concepts. But now let's let's delve into this. So why is the menorah placed opposite the mezuzah? And what are the themes of, of the menorah and the mezuzah? And why the mezuzah on the right and the menorah on the left? So we talked about the themes of the mezuzah. That, as the Rambam says, the, the, the mezuzah brings an awareness of the Hashem's oneness whenever you enter Ruma Nurashus, you remind yourself of the Yichud Hashem, it is partial of Shema, source yourself back to Hashem and his oneness, and we have to straighten the bent path. It might look crooked, but maybe we're crooked. We have to learn how to see with deeper lens. And it's about transitioning into Rushus Hayachid where we are building that mindset. But the Iker of the Mezuzah is entering from the Rushus Harabim into a Rushus Hayachid. Meaning what? It's the separation from one Rishos into another, and the focus is entering the home. And so the essence of Mezuzah is entering the home, entering the Rishos HaYachid, and the main focus is that I'm entering into a private, intimate makam where true awareness of Hashem can exist, true awareness of oneness can exist, and I'm going to integrate the multiplicity and two-ness of the outside you know, public arena doing this in the privacy of my home and it's not only the ability to do it when you have the quiet of the home but it's the fundamental nature of the more intimate root state of our internal world is where true oneness can experientially and intellectually exist and it's also the type of of oneness orientor like these ideas are the type of ideas that you can truly connect to and contemplate when you're in the privacy of your home privacy of your room where you're not you know so to speak, in the outside realm of your of your consciousness, which is much more practical and analytical and detail-oriented, but you can exist within the realm of ideas and principles and concepts and truly live within that higher realm. As the Vilna Gon explains, this is the realm of Torah which exists above time, where you ascend above time and learn these ideas in a way that's truly transformative, truly intellectual and existential and transformational which will as the Vilna Gun says it, it, it will transform the way you experience life emotionally and transform the way you live life in terms of mycin that's the, the Vilna Gun's famous idea of melech how our job in life is to become a melech which is where your moach your internal world of world of higher thought affects your lave affects your emotional reality which then affects you know your kaved which is literally 
you know, your, your liver, but it's, it's how you express yourself into the lower part of your body in terms of how you express yourself into the world through action, which is why Bilam corrupted that concept of melech, which is living from thought affecting emotion affecting action, and he used the word kalem to try to curse the Jewish people. Kalem is the opposite of melech. It's the corruption, where as opposed to expressing the higher, the infinite, into the finite, it's flipping the order and saying the ikr is the finite. We're getting a little off track, but the point is that living a, a meditatively deep, higher, conscious, aware life of the oneness, integration, synthesis, and beauty of Torah, Tiferes is oneness, Tiferes is also pe'er beauty, that's the essence of mezuzah, is transitioning into that state. And the transition is from the outside into the internal Rishos HaYachid. The menorah is the opposite. Menorah and Hanukkah is the miracles of the world and what it represents. It teaches us how to see the miraculous within this world. And we're not going to go into now because we've given shirim on this, but the, the essence of Hanukkah is the transition to Torah Shabbat Peh. We have to learn how to put the pieces together. Learning Gemara Be'in, learning Torah Shabbat Peh is all about you know, within the complexity, within all the details, putting it together and gaining clarity from all the complexity. It's learning how to hear. The concept of hearing is putting the pieces together. It's our connection with Hashem where we build awareness of Hashem. We build understanding. We build the clarity. Torah Shabbat is given to us. Torah Shabbat is something we have to create. We have to build. We have to develop. We have to put the pieces together ourselves. And that's what Hanukkah represents. But the main concept of Hanukkah is Persumi Nisa, which is where you take the light from your home, from the intimate inner chambers of your home, of your internal world, and you express that outside into the world. You share the oneness of Torah into the world of Tunis. It's emanating that light outside of your home. And that's the idea of, of, of what we're doing on Hanukkah is we're expressing it outside. So how does this relate to mezuzah? What does this have to do with the right hand and left? So we talked about how chesed, which is you know the start of every process, expansion, always represents the right hand side. And that's the idea, that where is the emphasis? Because the emphasis, the expansion, needs to, meaning where the emphasis, where the starting point is, where the focal point is, that's going to be on the right hand side. And the question is, where is the focal point? Where is the starting side? Where is the expansion? Where is the focus? When it comes to each of these mitzvahs, when it comes to the mezuzah, the focus is entering the home. So when you enter the home, it's going to be on the right-hand side. right? The Rishos HaYachid is the Iker point, the Iker focus. The Iker, you're expanding into the Rishos HaYachid. In a certain sense, you're also limiting when you go into Rishos HaYachid. But in terms of the main element, you're expanding into this infinite realm of oneness when you enter into the Rishos HaYachid. That's the concept of mezuzah. So when entering, the mezuzah will be on the right-hand side. The menorah is all about exiting. Why? Because the whole point of mezuzah is sharing the light with the outside world. So it's about the right-hand side when exiting, which is the left-hand side when entering. So when the Gemara says the menorah is on the left-hand side, it's really saying, no, it's on the right-hand side, but from inside. And therefore, it's on the right-hand from inside, but when you're entering the room, when you're entering the house, that's going to be on the left-hand side. And that's why mezuzah is all about the, the privacy, the intimacy of the internal nature of your home, Rosh and the menorah is the expansive nature of taking everything from the Rosh and sharing it out, sharing that light into the world. That's why menorah, the root of menorah is or, right? That same concept of or. And that's why the idea 
of a menorah is sharing the or Torah is also or Torah or orisa, the light of Torah, sharing that light of Torah with the world. And the idea is not only for Hanukkah, but it's that we continue what we started on Hanukkah throughout the year, and that's really our goal in the world, is to build that light internally and share it outside. So now what we're going to do, now that we've built some extraordinarily deep ideas when it comes to mezuzah, we're going to delve into some of the halacha, some of the lambdas, and again, this is something we can spend many, many shirim doing. It's something which requires a lot more than just the second half of one shir. But the frame of these shirim is to build some paradigms, build concepts, build ideas, and show how it sheds light on a lot of the fundamental questions in the sugis that come up. So let's start with some of the basic questions when it comes to this. So one of the basic questions, what size should the room be when it comes to the chiv, the requirement of a mezuzah. So the Gemara talks about the chiv of being dalit by dalit amos, four by four amos. And the Rambam talks about this in terms of one of the basic questions is, does it have to actually be four by four, or does it have to have 16 amos in all? Right? Meaning, does it have to be... Um, are, we, are we talking about the total area, or are we talking about... Um, uh, a specific, specific amount, 4 by 4 And what's the idea of 4 by 4 So let, let's deepen this a little bit. The Maharal talks about this. And the Maharal talks about the nature of the Dalit. Right? Dalit is 4, and the Gematria 4, and it's also the number of Tunis. So what's the idea? The idea is that, first of all, how is Dalit the number of Tunis? So four, there are four seasons. So there's four sides in the square frame. The Dalit has perpendicular lines, right? Two lines crossing each other at a nine degree angle. And the Maharal explains that the Dalit is the nature, it's the number of, of finite boundaries. So Bayes is the letter of Tunis, but Dalit represents the concept of boundaries. And in addition to, it's also the you know, four directions on the compass, but the, the concept of Dalit represents physical space, right? And if you want a really deep idea about this, the Rashi brings down the famous, the famous Maimir Chazal, the Hakash Baruch created the world with a, with a hay and a yud. What's that? What's that idea? What's the hay and the yud? So if you think about it, a hay is a dollar with a yud in it. A yud, without getting into all details, because this requires a whole share in itself, but a yud is the smallest letter in Aleph Beis. It's a spark. It's literally a spark. That's why 10 is a very deep number in Jewish thought. Many different ways. But Yud is a spark. It's a spark of the infinite. It represents the infinite. And He is a Dalid with a Yud in it. Why? Because what did Hakash, how did HaKash Baruch create the world? He created the world by taking the infinite, by taking the Yud, and placing it within the realm of the finite, within the realm of the Dalid. So a He is always always represents the marriage, the synthesis, the harmony between the infinite and the finite, the physical and the spiritual, because HaKadosh Baruch Hu took the Yud and placed it within a Dalit. Dalit represents the, the finite, limited, boundaried reality. And that's why Dalit literally, like Dalit, right? the f physical is a door, it's a gateway into the spiritual. Think about that. Right? When, you, when you enter through a door, what do you, what's the concept? There's a transition. It's a gateway into somewhere else. So what is the physical world? The physical world is a Dalit. It is a delet. It is a doorway, 
right? Because the whole physical world is a gateway into the spiritual. Everything in the world, every emotional, physical, psychological, intellectual, mathematical, every phenomena, in, in, it contains infinite depth. And it's a gateway, it's a doorway. What's the mezuzah? A mezuzah is literally, as you transition through a doorway, you have to have awareness of the underlying oneness because even though it seems like the world is always a doorway into another finite reality, and we're always living in the world of multiplicity, you're remembering the underlying oneness that exists at root. So the number four, Dalit four by four, it's the concept of, of transitioning into a different finite reality. And then the halachic question becomes, the Rabbi Shonim argued, does it have to be actually four by four, or does it have to equal four by four, which is 16 amos? So the Rambam holds that you have to have actually, meaning you have to have a totality of 16. So it can even be eight by two. You just need to have a total of four by four. It's about the conceptual concept of, and we don't have to get into this right now, but whenever you multiply something by itself, it's the ultimate expression of it. So Sphere Somer is the, the seven by seven. It's the ultimate expression of sevenness, which is 49. That's the idea of multiplying something by itself. It's expressing that. So that Rizal talks about this. Maral talks about this. So the concept of four by four is the expression of fourness. So the Rambam is saying that you don't need to actually have four by four. You have to have the, the totality of four by four, which is 16. The Rush says you have to actually have four by four the chiv is only created when you have four by four right so in order to have the chiv of mezuzah it has to be a specific shear um so if it's 16 amos but not four by four lalacha what do we say so the shach says you should be machmer like the rambam and put a mezuzah even if it's eight by two um but you only make a bracha if it's four by four so basically he says that you should hold like the rambam in terms of misa but not in terms of lalacha for bracha for bracha you have to actually have four by four and the taz says no even to put up a mezuzah you have to actually have four by four he says we don't hold like the rambam so now the question is what if it's less than four by four, but it's still a usable room, right? So what's the, the question? The question is like this. The question is that four by four, is that creating a shame, like a chalos, a shame, the, the nature of a room, meaning less than four by four, it's just not a room, or it's that practically four by four is what's necessary to, <clears throat> to have a room that's usable. But let's say it is usable. Let's say it's a really small room and somehow you're able to use it. So... The, the Hamudi Daniel, which is cited in the Pesach he says something very interesting. He says that it's only a regular room that needs to be four by four in order to be considered. I mean, for a regular room to get a shame, to get a chalos, shame, cheder, to be a room, uh, it needs four by four. Because what? Because that's the necessary size of a regular room. But what about a hallway or a passageway? If it's usable, then even if it's less than four by four, it would require mezuzah because the whole concept of four by four is only for the the sake of a regular room. But if this is the purpose of what it's being used for, it kind of conceptually becomes room. Now you can argue that no, that's not even a room, meaning that's just a hallway that has a whole different a whole different category. But this is a very machmishita that even a hallway or a passageway like this would require mezuzah. Now. There are some very interesting shitas which we don't need to go into so deeply, but Rabbi Akiva Eger says something very interesting as well, which is that you should still need a mezuzah on the right side coming into a bigger room from a closet or a hallway or a porch, um, even if that smaller room is less than 4x4 four four and doesn't require mezuzah for itself. Right. So he's basically saying that there 
it's not only, I mean, he's saying that there needs to be a coming in and going out from his Zoset, and we assume, meaning, meaning even if only one of the rooms in question requires it, then the mezuzah going into the bigger room would still require it, which is very interesting because you basically have a question, what if one room requires it but another room doesn't require it? So he's saying that, that you do. Um, just a side note, we never place a mezuzah on both sides of a door. Like, never do that. And that would be a potential Esther Baal Tosef. The questions come up, well, where where is the entryway? I mean, which side is the entryway room, right? You always want to put on the right-hand side, but which is the right-hand side? I mean, which room is being entered? And if they're both being entered, how do you choose? So they, these are complicated questions where you have to kind of determine which side of the doorway um, is the entryway in terms of putting it on. It's not always clear. Very often it is. Very often it's not. When a room has literally one entryway, um, it's pretty obvious. When there are multiple doorways into the same room, it becomes a little bit complicated because it's not clear um, which is being entered, which is being exited. And that could be a matter of debate. Um, so that was a very interesting sheet about Rabbi Kivager. Um For apartment buildings, there's a very interesting question of whether the Chiv Mezuzah stems from owning the building you're living in it. So Mestama, it would come, you'd think it would come from living in it, but not necessarily. I mean, it could be that only when you own it and live in it. What if you only own it, but someone else is living in it? So you, you have non-Jews living in a house that you own. So Mestama, you wouldn't have a requirement there. But what if you have other Jews that are living in your home, you own it, they're renting, who has the Chiv of Mezuzah? Is it both of you? Is it only one of you? Is it a person who owns it, a person who's living there? These are interesting questions to think about. So when it comes to apartment building, let's say the non-Jew owns the building. So if a non-Jew owns the building and you're renting a chutfus with a non-Jew, right? You're a partner with a non-Jew in terms of the, the financial nature of this building or, or this apartment building, or at least this apartment, you know, uh, the apartment that you live in. So most posts can actually think that this makes the building putter from mezuzah if a non-Jew owns it. Because he doesn't have a requirement to mezuzah. And if you think you require both ownership and living, or at least one of the two, then you say, okay, in this case, you are living there, but you don't own it. Even though you're a partial owner, you don't really have ownership. Uh, it gets into the whole nature of what is renting. Is renting saying that I'm taking partnership in this? Is it saying that I'm paying you to use it? Or is it saying that I'm actually becoming a semi-ba'al, semi-owner in this? And to what degree? Am I a full owner? So the more that you push up the ownership of renting, the more that you would require mezuzah, the more that you say renting is not full ownership, the more that you would be inclined to say that you would not require to put a mezuzah, unless you think that mezuzah it has nothing to do with ownership, only about living in the current building, and because you're living there, you would require it. Another question is whether or not you need a door. Right? Let's say you have just a, an archway. Right? Do you, do you need an actual door to be chayv and mezuzah? There doesn't need to be an opening. Now, what would be this far? This far is like this. The more we emphasize the essential nature of mezuzah as being a fundamental transition, the more we want to create a fundamental transition from one room to another. If there's just an opening, you can argue that that's not really a transition. Maybe it's really one big room. Maybe it's you know a, a, a conceptual transition between one room and another room, but not enough to actually create a chiv, a requirement of putting up a mezuzah. The more that mezuzah is about a very fundamental transition from one place to another place, the more we need a fundamental transition from one place to another place, which will require an actual door, where you're actually doing a mice of opening a door, or there's something actually there. You, you're very much going from one room to, one room to another. 
But when you're not fundamentally transitioning, you're just going from one place to another place, you can definitely argue that you don't need to put up a mezuzah. We are machmir put up a mezuzah, even if there's no doorway. Um, but a lot of Rishonim, a lot of, no, no, sorry, not Rishonim, a lot of Achronim hold that because of the Rambam's shita, we should not do it, make a bracha when putting up a mezuzah on a, uh, you know, on a doorway without an actual door. Um, so now the question also becomes, this is very interesting, when you actually put up mezuzahs, how high should you put it up? So based on everything, and this is where I just want to frame it before we go through the different shitas, how high do you think you should put up the mezuzah? Yeah, think about a sukkah, right? A sukkah, you can't make it too high, right? Because then you can't see the schach. Why, why, who cares about seeing the schach? The essential nature of, uh, and the essential mitzvah, the ikr mitzvah of the sukkah is the schach. It's the same root of sukkah, schach. And we've given shirim on this in terms of the essential nature of the schach, and the whole idea of having transparent schach, of learning how to see past the surface. But the idea is that you have to be able to see it. And the whole idea of the mezuzah, the wake-up call is coming in touch with it, coming in contact with the mezuzah, seeing the mezuzah, not just having it there. It's something that you have to have a re'iya, you have to see the mezuzah in order to truly be mekayim what the Rambam is talking about when he says the wake-up call, all the ideas we talked about, you have to literally see. You can't just say, I'm going through a doorway and I put up a mezuzah. You have to see the mezuzah. So in order to see the mezuzah, where should it be? So it should be in a place that you'll see it. You know, where, where is your eyesight going when you walk through a doorway? So the Shulchan Aruch says that it should be by the upper third of the doorway. It should be placed on the bottom of the upper third of the doorway. And if it's placed too high, like on the top tefach, or too low, on the uh, you know below the upper third, you're not yet. Say, why? Because you have to see it. So what's this idea? The idea is basically being shoulder length, right? When you walk, you kind of like have this general vision, you know, straight around shoulder length. Now here's the kasha, here's the shaila, here's the question. What if the door is very tall? So the Yerushalmi says you should place it on the shoulder height. Meaning it doesn't matter how tall the door is. It's not about the upper third for the sake of the upper third. It's about the upper third because that's about shoulder length. But if the if the upper third is so way above shoulder length, it should always it doesn't matter. You don't still do the upper third of that door. You put it based on your actual height and the average height, average shoulder length. Um, so the question some people ask is: Does this go against the third? The, does this go against the shita of the Shulchan Aruch, which is based on the Gemara uh, in the Bavli? So we have some different shitas in the Achronim, but the Chazanish is basically saying: No, no, no. The, the reason the Talmud Bavli, the reason the, the the regular Gemara Bavli and the Shulchan Aruch said the upper third is because they're talking about a regular doorway, which is shoulder height, and it's always about shoulder height. The reason why they gave that shear, that amount, is just to clarify where shoulder height is. But if the, the door is so tall, you're still going to, even the, the Gemara Bavli and even uh, the Shulchan Aruch would agree that it would be shoulder height. Um, and the Yerushalmi just happens to be talking about a really tall door, and that's just, just a different situation. So now another question is which rooms require mezuzah? So if you think about it, which rooms should require mezuzah? So you can say every room requires a mezuzah, but based on what we've been saying, what what should which room should require mezuzah? Only rooms in a place that you live, meaning what? In, in your bias, in your Rosh Hashayachid. Because what's the Rosh Hashayachid? It's the Rosh Hashayachid is, is supposed to be your home. So any place that's part of your home, a place that you live, should require mezuzah. So what about a storage room? So Shulchan Aruch says a storage room requires mezuzah, but only if it's part of your house. 
right? So if it's a garage, but it's part of your house conceptually, then it requires a mezuzah. But if it's somewhere like in a separate location, like on a highway, a storage area somewhere else, so no one lives there. So it doesn't require mezuzah, because what's the whole point? The point is entering into Yerush If it's not part of Yerush it doesn't really require mezuzah. What about a shul? Shul or base measure? So this becomes very interesting, because on the one hand, you'd say that First of all, you say, like, of course it should require mezuzah, because, like, why wouldn't it? But think about it. No one lives there. So if we hold that the only way to have a true chiv of mezuzah is if someone lives there, no one's living there. It's not a shasayachid. So in general, the post can say that you, we basically hold that you still put up a mezuzah, both out of bracha. So um, not everyone holds this way. And then when it comes to base measures, there is machokas, right? Some think that you really do require mezuzah because it's like a dira, because you're allowed to eat there, you're allowed to sleep there. Now, it doesn't mean that people do it, that you're allowed to do it. Um, but some people say it doesn't require mezuzah because it's not, it's not really a dira. So the debate is based on what is considered a place of, of a truly being a dira, truly being a rishosayach, truly fulfilling the essential nature of what a mezuzah is supposed to be doing. So Many hold that you put up a mezuzah without a bracha. Uh, you know, so some may hold you do it with a bracha. When it comes to a chanos, when it comes to a store, um, once again, no one lives there. Right? You're part of from putting up a mezuzah. When it comes to an office building, again, it's only a dear SRI, and, and you know, live there at night. Um, we hold that you do put up a bracha. Sorry, we do hold that you do put up a mezuzah. Um, in general, we uh, most agree that you put up a mezuzah without a bracha because no one's actually living there. Um, some posts can say that if it's really difficult to put up mezuzah, you can rely on the opinion that since it's only like a regular store and no one's living there, then you're probably from putting up a mezuzah. Um, here is also an interesting question. What if you are moving, right? So what if you have a mezuzah in your house or an apartment and you're moving, you move, you got a job, whatever, you're getting married, whatever it is, and you are moving and you have a question. What's your question? What should you do with your mezuzahs? So, think about it. What should you do with your mezuzahs? Does the house still require a mezuzah? Let's talk. think about it in multiple stages. Number one, let's say no one's living there. right? You were living there, and then no one's living there. Does the house require mezuzahs? Why would it? And let's say someone else is moving in. Well, if it's a Jew, then you know, should you be taking your mezuzahs and, and, and leave it so that they don't have mezuzahs when they come? If it's a non-Jew, you seem, it should be pretty obvious you should take them. But we, the question really comes down to a couple of things. Number one, are you ever allowed to take mezuzahs down? Is that a problem? Number two, if you are taking it down, um, do you have to make sure that the other mezuzahs are going to be put up, or do you, is that not your responsibility? Number three is if you have to keep them up, should you get paid for them? Right, let's say you have to keep them up because if Jews are coming and moving in, you have to make sure that the house doesn't lose its status of having mezuzahs up. So should you get paid? Mezuzahs cost money. It's not easy to, to make a mezuzah. It's definitely, uh, it could cost a lot of money. I mean, Baruch Hashem nowadays doesn't cost that much money. It's definitely affordable, but it, it costs money. So should you get uh, compensated for that? And if non-Jew, let's say you don't know who's moving in, what should you do? So in general, the, the, the basic halacha is that if Jews are moving, and if you know Jews are moving, and you should leave the mezuzahs for them. You don't have to leave the actual you know fancy boxes around them, but you should leave the actual scrolls. You shouldn't take it because we don't want to uproot the mezuzah from its place because there's going to be a chiv for the mezuzah in this home. 
So why should you create a situation where you're taking away the, the fulfillment of the mezuzah when it's already being fulfilled? I mean, it's not that there will be a chiv, it's that there's currently a chiv, and then all of a sudden, the second that you leave, there's a new chiv. So you can say that maybe in that transition, since there was no chiv in that moment of transition, I don't have to leave it. But the way that most understand it in terms of at least halachalamaisa is that on the practical level, on the fundamental level, the mitzvah continues, and therefore you should uproot the fulfillment, uh, uproot the mezuzah from its place because there's still a need for it. Now, if Goyim are moving in, or if you don't know if Jews are moving in, especially when it comes to apartments, you don't really take care of the transition, you just leave, you know, your lease is up, then you should take the mezuzah with you. And as far as basically, number one, you have a right to them, you know, you paid for them. Number two is that you don't know if Jews are going to be moving in, so there's no there's no reason to say I should keep them there. And number three is that if non-Jews move in, then they're going to throw them out. They're not going to, you know, put them in Geniza. They're going to throw them out, and it's going to be a tremendous bizayon to the to the Shem Hashem. And also, they shouldn't have that. Period. Like it's just not appropriate for for it to be in their shows. So, if Jews are moving in, so what should you do? So we said you should keep them there. The Ramah says you are allowed to charge the incoming Jews for the mezuzah because they're yours. You're not allowed to, you don't, you're not allowed to take them because it's not right. They, they also have, have a chiv of, of mezuzah, so you should keep the mezuzahs in place, but you still paid for them. You don't need to lose money because of it, so that you should be compensated. Um, and also, here's where it gets interesting. If the landlord, let's say it's it's an apartment, and the landlord is painting the apartment before the incoming tenant, so you, of course you can take it off for the painting because you don't want it to get ruined. But once you can take them off because you don't want it to get ruined, you don't need to put it back on afterwards, even if Jews are coming in. Meaning, if the if the Mizzes are there, you have to keep them there for the Jews. If the if it's a non-Jew, you take them off. If it's a Jew that's going to be moving into the apartment, but you're going to take them off anyways because it's going to be painted, once you can take them off, you've kind of cut off the continual nature of the Muslims already there concept. It's no longer already there. Then you don't have to put it back on for them because now it's still your Muslims and you can take them. So one last Shiloh before we wrap up, and this is a, a very interesting Shiloh, is mezuzahs on the bedroom door. So the basic problem, if you've ever learned uh, the sugya, is you can't have kisvet kodesh opposite place of tasha shamita. You have intimate relationships, man and wife. You, you, you're not supposed to have kisvet kodesh. So if you have svarim in the room, it's problematic. You should use whole halachas of covering them and putting them in bookcases and whether the whole whole discussion. But what's the problem? Problem is if, what if you have a mezuzah. A mezuzah, literally Shem Hashem, Parshios, many different Parshios, incredible Parshios. You have a big problem there. How can you have a mezuzah on the bedroom door? It's the opposite uh, place of Tashanamita. And it's not that Tashanamita is animalistic, it's the, it's the most spiritual thing ever, but there are halachas, there are rules in terms of the ways to do it, in terms of how to do it correctly, you can't do it with uh, with Kisvei Kodesh in the presence of the, the Maisa Tashem Samita. So the Arach HaShulchan has one fascinating approach, which says that basically dealing very practically. On the one hand, the Torah says, Pruvu, right? You have a mitzvah, Tashem Samita, mitzvah Pruvu, to, uh, to procreate, and yet there's also a mitzvah of having a mezuzah on the bedroom door. So he says it must be okay. Meaning the fact that the Torah says you have both, you must be that it's fine, not a problem. The Balatanya, the Shulchan Archerav, he says that if the mezuzah is attached to the wall, then it has a rishus of its own. So basically, it's in its own conceptual reality, its own conceptual rishus, its conceptual framework, so to speak, and there's no issue. It's like in its own world. You can't have Sefer Kodesh lying around like on the table or something, but this is kind of a mezuzah in its own 
halachic realm, so to speak. And the Chayandam says that basically not getting too much into the halachas of what to do when you have Kisvei Kodesh and Ruben Tashra Samita, but the basic halachas you have to have two wrappings. So the Chayandam says that if you have two wrappings around the mezuzah, then it'll be fine. And he says, ah, but when it comes to there are different halachas when it comes to these two wrappings. So in general, the halacha is that the second wrapping has to be for the sake of being a wrapper. So the first wrapper can just be, um, let's say if a, you know, a book has, you know, like a casing over it or you know, a cover, whatever it is, it's covered just, but it's not for the sake of, of wrapping for halachic wrapping, it's just a wrapper that's already on it. So then that, that only counts as one. You have to have two, at least one of them has to be for the sake of wrapping. So the mezuzah case already counts as one wrapper because there's a case around the mezuzah. And then you put another case for the sake of being a wrapper. So that's that's the Chai Adam's sack. So sometimes you see like a little plastic case around the actual scroll and then you put another mezuzah case around that. So technically those are two casings. And the stipler, um, he holds that you can actually just cover it. Um, you can place a nail above the mezuzah and just place like a, a shirt or a towel over the mezuzah before Tashra Samita. And the Ramah quotes the Yishomrim that if a room has Tashra Samita, then um, it doesn't require mezuzah at all. So in your your bedroom, you basically don't require mezuzah because it's just not covered for the mezuzah. So he thinks that it doesn't require mezuzah. That's a yeshomrim. In general, we, you know, there's a lot of debate in terms of you know how to approach a yeshomrim in the Ramah. We're not going to talk about that right now. There are also some deeper answers as well in terms of the oneness oriented of Tashan Hamita and the oneness of mezuzah. But we can talk about that at a different time. Um, practically, we you should... You know, in terms of general consensus, we should place the mezuzah closest to the outside of the doorway so that more area is covered and it's not so open to the room. Um, but this is just another uh, very fascinating shaila in terms of the mezuzah. In essence, we covered a lot. And this is a, this is a type of shear which if we wanted to spend the, the time, we can spend literally tens of hours going through all the makoras, delving in depth into these sugyas begin. Many, many, many of these halachic sugyas are, are full sugyas which have so many fascinating nuances and so many fascinating connections to other related sugyas. But the point is that you want to see the depth, the profundity, interconnectedness of Torah. How learning Torah in depth, learning machshava be'in, learning how to approach Torah in a deeper holistic manner can then manifest itself as you deepen your approach to learning these sugyas from halachic and gemara be'in perspective. And there are levels of Torah, there are stages of Torah, but the beauty of Torah is when you integrate it all together. So we should be zilchat to not only learn this Torah, but live this Torah. When we transition from the outside world into our homes we open ourselves up into the realm of oneness and we really commit a seder at least once a day or once a week to truly internal self-contemplation to truly delve into the oneness of ourselves of Akash Baruch Hu, of the world and to really build that harmony and oneness inside of our and we should be inspired to also expand the light outwards like Hanukkah teaches us to really share that wisdom, light, and oneness with the world, with the people in our lives, to make an impact, to think about ways that we can impact others. And the greatest way to impact others is to start by impacting ourselves and to continue growing and striving and truly seeing the oneness within the world. And we should all be zocha to not be shocked by the Rabbim who says that mezuzah is a wake-up call and say, what do you mean? How is it a wake-up call? I'm just seeing it. But learn that ideas transform the way we see and experience all aspects of this world and when we really are 
are in touch with the depth and wisdom of Torah, everything is a wake-up call. And the mezuzah becomes the ultimate wake-up call to the oneness of the world, the oneness of reality, the oneness of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the oneness of Torah. And we learn to realign ourselves and say, maybe the mezuzah isn't crooked, maybe I'm a little crooked, maybe I have to align myself with the truth a little more. And we should be inspired to live lives of MS, to continue to grow and strive, and to become our ultimate selves.